Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Freddie. And we're Rachel. And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we discuss more of the fallout from the budget. And you ask us, what on earth is supply side reform? The budget's been under even more scrutiny this week with MPs back in the chamber. The Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, faced Treasury questions earlier this week and we saw the Prime Minister Liz Truss fielding questions about it at PMQs as well. Freddie, you've been on the ground in the House of Commons, so to speak. What's the atmosphere been like? Because there's been a lot of pushback from Tory backbenchers. Yeah, I think it was a torrid afternoon for Liz Truss yesterday. You could feel her authority disintegrate hour by hour and it started at PMQs where... The faces of her backbenches were grim. When they weren't looking grim, they were suppressing laughter, which is never a good sign. And that went on throughout the afternoon. You had MPs talking about who should replace the Chancellor, who should replace the Prime Minister. And then she addressed the 1922 committee of backbenches at around 5pm. And at the atmosphere, as one MP put it to me, was funereal, which, is, which isn't a good look or a good word to describe a prime minister five weeks into a job yeah so were you making a nuisance of yourself standing outside the room I was down the corridor right, lots right. of journalists all like <laughs> get around the door I thought I would try and do something different and wait 50 meters down the corridor which didn't work <laughs> it's what's up still king well, it's definitely still worth reading your piece on it today, which went out in this morning's Morning Call newsletter and is on the website. So any listeners who want to read more about that funereal atmosphere can do so there. What is the basis of the pushback at the moment? Obviously, the markets haven't been reassured so far about the budget. And we will be having this sort of Halloween fis- fiscal statement that will lay out a bit more about how they intend to fund the tax cuts that they're saying they're sticking to. But Liz Truss actually said in PMQs that she won't be making any spending cuts either. Yeah, but in the next sentence, she said, we won't be making spending cuts, but we will be looking at government efficiencies. So I think that is a code word for spending cuts in another way. For instance, you could see public spending not be increased with inflation, which is Mm. in effect a cut. So there's lots of ways that they can bring about cuts without having to say it. Yeah. Okay. There was so many other U-turns as well, or at least there's a lack of clarity on no-fault evictions, for example, earlier this week, housing campaigners were in my inbox despairing because they thought that the ban on no-fault evictions wasn't going to go ahead. I think Liz Truss changed her mind on that, or at least said she had. And also this idea of a public information campaign on saving energy to try and avoid blackouts over winter. We learned from reports that Liz Truss had axed. This was coming out of the business department, Jacob Rees-Mogg. But then I think she U-turned on that as well. It's just, it's not a sign that this Prime Minister has much direction, even though the thing that we were supposed to know 
about her was that she was a, a politician of conviction who wanted to move forward with clarity despite her detractors, Rachel. Can I just say that I called the U-turn on the public energy campaign. I wrote a piece last week saying Mm. this makes no sense in terms of the public finances, in terms of politics, in terms of people's household spending, ideology. There is no rationale for not explaining to people how they can save energy. She is obviously going to U-turn on it and now she has. And I mention that just because I get basically every other prediction that I make (laughs) wrong. Well done. Thank you. No, uh, she's backed into a corner here because we had the mini budget and then we had a market reaction and the sort of mood even from people who are loyal to Liz Truss was, no, it's a little bit of a blip. Give them some time to sort it out. They do have a plan. They do have a, a spending plan. Just give them some time to show where the fiscal responsibility is going to come from and show their workings on that. And we haven't had that plan yet. We're going to get it on Halloween. So we've got another two weeks of turmoil before that happens. But I think what is becoming increasingly clear is it's very difficult to see what that plan can say that will help the government at all. Because if it is something that is going to help stabilise the markets, then it's going to have to have massive reversals of a lot of the stuff that was announced in the mini budget. And it's also going to have to have public spending reined in in some way, whether that's cuts or whether that's actually tax rises. Mm. Like if you want to show international markets that Britain is a economically credible bet in, in which to invest your money, then that's what it's going to have to show. All of those things are political suicide for Liz Truss, because if she threatens cuts to public spending, the half of her party that didn't want her will have her, as will Labour Party and everyone else. And if she reverses on the tax cuts, that's what Tory members voted for when they appointed her in the first place. So there is no answer that keeps the markets happy and her party happy and the country happy. And this whole, oh, just give them another few days, give them another week, they're sorting it out. There's a plan that's coming and then it will all make sense. I think everyone knows that is just what's going to happen. Mm. And one option that you didn't list there, Rachel, but has been touted by a few people, Freddie, you mentioned it at the top of the podcast, is the idea of Kwasi Kwarteng being replaced as Chancellor. And you wrote about this, Rachel W., didn't you? What are the prospects of that? And also, would it actually make a difference? Well, when you look at the options that Liz Truss has, half her parliamentary party are, are opposed to her. And then it's not, I think the point that many of our opponents are making is that it's that the whole mini budget was a shambles for a lot of reasons. So it was preceded by Quasi Quarting coming into the job and sacking Tom Scholar, the top civil servant in the Treasury. It was also preceded by the OBR being shut out of the situation and not being able to put their forecast out at the same time, which is another part of the orthodoxy of doing a budget. And then all of the measures in it spooked the markets and it's been chaotic since then. But it's all part of one one event and it's I think a lot with a lot of the problems that Liz Truss has that people are finding it hard to extricate themselves from this big mistake which is all part of the same thing and I, I'm being told that a lot of people who are kind of backing Truss or certainly backed her in the leadership contest are starting to admit that Quasi Kwarteng will probably have to be replaced mm-hmm. and somebody else brought in I've heard the name Nadim Zahawi in that respect but it might be the one thing that saves her premiership really if she's she's able to 
take out this one big problem that's started her time at number it's funny 10. how things change isn't it remember when Nadim Zahawi was chancellor for about two seconds he was the lady Jane Grey of chancellors and now he's the one being spoken about as a safer pair of hands even though he flip-flops so much over the Boris Johnson ousting he lasted longer than Michelle Donnellan lasted at education which was 36 oh, yeah. hours <laughs> I forgot that is a good sort of pub quiz answer to remember for future years well I interviewed her and so I'm going to remember that forever <laughs> like the shortest serving cabinet minister so far, Michelle Donnellan, Education Secretary, 36 hours, now Culture Secretary. Right, okay. So she came back. Probably not in the running to be (laughs) Chancellor. (laughs) Another thing that they could do, which a few of the more sort of sensible, I say that with a capital S, Tory MPs are suggesting who want to try and stay loyal but also are terrified of the mess that they're in, is they could not reverse the tax cuts, but defer some of them. And actually, what I found interesting this morning, we're recording on a Thursday morning, was James Cleverly was on the Today programme and he was trying to talk down the tax cuts sort of radicalism by saying, well, actually, a lot of them are just not going ahead with things that Rishi Sunak had planned. So things like the corporation tax rise, the income tax cut. Could it be that they just bring that plan back in? Well, potentially, yeah, that has been mooted. You create an incremental plan for the budget to be implemented. But on that, I don't think the argument stands completely because lots of businesses and individuals have already planned for the previous tax cuts. So once the change is still relevant, it's not just reversing something that might happen in the future. Businesses forecast their spending over years. So that's already been taken into account. Mm, Priced in, as the political language goes. And then Labour's in a little bit of a tangle over this, isn't it? John Ashworth, Shadow Work and Pension Secretary, confused things a bit a few days ago by saying Labour is against against the penny off uh, the basic income tax rate, even though that's not the party's position. The whole thing is a little bit muddy, isn't it? Because they keep saying that they would scrap the, what do they call it, the Kamikwazi budget, but then they actually are going to keep a few of these things. Yeah, and you saw Liz Truss try and make a political point about this at PMQs. It's something she kept reverting to at the end of Keir Starmer's questions. The problem with that strategy is that the disaster of the government is so extreme, no one's at the moment taking notice of Mm. Labour. So, yeah, sure, as we've spoken about before, I do think Labour have big problems with taxes and how they're going to fund their policies after the next general election. But at the moment, the focus isn't there and there's little political capital for the Prime Minister to gain from focusing on it. Can I just add on that from PMQs this week? I don't think Keir Starmer performed particularly well, he didn't have a gotcha moment. I don't think he had a particularly good clip. And it didn't matter because Liz Truss was so bad and the absence where some kind of plan or strategy was so glaring in her answers. And she was trying to point out that the main spending commitment of the mini budget wasn't these tax rises. It was the energy price guarantee, which is something that Labour had called for. And I think it's pretty clear that any Prime Minister, if it had been Richie Sunak, if Labour were in charge, would be doing something to help families and households with energy energy costs. And it didn't matter because even though that might be the biggest spending commitment, that's not the kind of symbolic cause of this panic. And I think if you're talking about what she can do to recover, it's not actually necessarily about the individual measures. I think that Liz Truss could probably reverse every single one of her tax cuts and try and keep, even try and pare back the energy support and the markets would still be spooked because what they got in that mini budget was just an image of two people running this country's economy who have no idea how economics works in real life, who think that they can promise billions of spending commitments with no idea how to pay for it and just go, oh yeah, it will be fine. And then when it isn't fine, go, 
oh, we weren't expecting that to happen. And I think it's now so associated with them, with Liz Truss and Quasi Quarteng, that even if they then go, oh, no, we're going to do sensible things now, I don't think that's very reassuring because you still have two people in charge who have no personal financial credibility. And so even if they're suggesting doing vaguely sensible things, it's not enough. So I think you'd probably have to get rid of the Chancellor and replace him and then reverse everything. And then maybe... (laughs) Liz Truss could limp on, but I think she's very tarnished personally by it too. Yeah, I was just going to say, I was chatting to a lot of Lib people this week and they're, they're planning for a number of scenarios over the next few months. And one of them is Liz Truss not being prime minister any oh, wow. longer. So they're, they're factoring in that she may go and trying to build a strategy around that. But I think some of their approach is quite interesting in that <laughs> I think a lot of them would privately admit that they would probably want Liz Truss to stay <laughs> in post, actually, because that's obviously... At this point, given everything that Rachel just rightly pointed out, this whole situation has massively damaged her as an individual politician. And, you know, that if Labour want to win the next election, it serves them to keep her in post. So I think part of their approach at the minute is to spread the blame around and to talk as much as they possibly can about the philosophy behind it. You'll hear them repeat trickle-down economics all of the time because they think that's their best route to spreading out the damage of what's happened over the last month. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including Edward Docks on the death of Boris the Clown. When did the booing start? He was never exactly sure. A year inside GB News with Stuart McGurk. One presenter told me that producers had taken to booking their own parents. May Robson on why women's football is the more beautiful game. Like most of the England squad, the Euro 2022 captain Leah Williamson can't afford not to have a plan B. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You, you Ask, ask us. us. You Ask Us. So we have a question today from Thomas. Thanks, Thomas. What on earth is supply-side reform? I love this question because this is one of those terms that everyone suddenly pretends that they understand all of a sudden, but it's not exactly common vernacular. Rachel, can you try and give us a little definition? Yeah, so this, I think this is a great question. Demand-side reforms is giving people more money to spend on things so they can buy more things so that you increase demand. So if you give people tax cuts, they have more money in their pocket, they can go out and spend, they can stimulate the economy. Supply side reforms is doing things that enable 
people to make more things, to work harder, to be more productive, to produce more widgets to serve more restaurant meals like whatever and that's your way of increasing growth and gdp overall because your economy is just working better and producing more the key ones that i think kind of cross party everyone agrees with are planning reform because one thing that is massively holding back British productivity is that people cannot afford to live near where there are good jobs because housing costs are too expensive or because there there isn't enough good infrastructure in terms of rail lines or bus routes in and that prevents people from being as productive as they could be because they can't travel to the jobs that they'd be more productive in, which is coincidentally the one thing that the Conservative government is almost certainly not going to do because it really upsets Conservative voters <laughs> in those leafy southern constituencies where they actually don't want more houses and where the Lib Dems stand there to, to capitalise on. We turned this ugly brownfield garage into a block of flats. Oh no, you've ruined the character of the area. So that's a big one. <laughs> Other key ones, I would say things like child care provision. There are lots of parents who would really like to work or work more and who can't because childcare is basically extortionate and unaffordable in this country. And then more general things like investing in skills so that people have the right skills and training to be able to do the jobs or investing in healthcare so that people who have health conditions can get them treated so they can go to work. All of that stuff that basically keeps the economy functioning so that you can be more productive. And that is all the stuff that Liz Truss theoretically is going to fix with the negative political capital that she currently has. Thank you for that. That was very <laughs> articulate. And I think our listeners will find it really It's a great useful. question. Yeah. What's interesting is that Liz Truss obviously tried to frame her kind of opponents as the anti-growth coalition, in inverted commas, the people who are against the kind of reforms that she wants to bring in that you were outlining there, Rachel, that she thinks would sort of turbo boost the economy. But what's interesting is that the anti-growth coalition does contain a lot of Tory factions itself, Tory MPs who are anti-immigration or want to bring immigration numbers down. Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, has been a prime example of that. The kind of low immigration protectionist Brexiteers that Andrew Marr was outlining when we spoke to him, Freddie, on a previous episode recently. All of those Tory councillors, Tory MPs who are anti-planning reform, who represent seats where they don't want development in the area. What's interesting is that when I was going around talking to the Tory grassroots, a lot of the councillors in southern areas who I was talking to were pro-Liz Truss because they thought that her planning reforms would be more beneficial to them. And so it will be interesting to hear, and I, I will get back in touch with some of them, whether they feel nervous about this or whether they feel that there's no way that she's going to get this stuff through. And then also fracking as well. So one in four Tory constituencies have areas which are under fracking licences, so they'll be nervous about that. It seems unlikely that Liz Truss will be able to take on the anti-growth coalition because a lot of it is in her own party, in fact, on her own benches. It's us as well, I should say. She specifically said podcasters. Yeah, we did. That's the four of us. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think the supply side reform was one of the key parts of Truss's policy platform over the summer. We had the tax cuts and now she wants to look at deregulation. And one of the key ways that she wants to do that is by repealing and replacing a lot of the EU law. So that bill's already been introduced to Parliament, but she wanted to get it through by the end of 2023, which we don't know whether she'll still be there by then. So that's one of the problems is we she doesn't have the, as Rachel said, the political capital to get any of this through. On planning, Boris Johnson tried to do that with the levelling up and regeneration bill. And with his 
popularity and with his ATC majority, he still had to backtrack on that. So it mm. seems exceptionally unlikely that they'll get anything through on that. And the same, as you said, with fracking, many Red Wall MPs are very much opposed to it, particularly among the quite influential NRG, Northern Research Group. So yeah, the policy that she outlined over the summer to go along with the tax cuts is looking as if it's not going to get through Parliament in any way. Mm. Rachel? This whole idea of growing the pie is not going to perhaps work in circumstances like the ones we have at the moment. And that's certainly what the IMF have pointed out this week to this trust's government. Although we've got this big standoff with the Bank of England, so we've got a government that just wants to set its face against everything. That's what I thought was really interesting, because this idea of let's just do what we want to do and screw the sort of establishment voices like those that you listed, Rachel, was a tactic that kind of worked with Brexit. They got the country to vote to leave in the first place, and they they had enough Eurosceptics on their backbenches that they didn't have the, obviously there were the Brexit wars, but they managed to sort of, in the end, battle through the kind of deal that they wanted. I'm not sure why this time round they don't realise that they don't have that majority support in their party for the kind of changes they now want to move fast and break. If you like, why, that's a really good question. Why don't yeah, they I don't get that? Quite. I think Brexit's different, as in it followed a vote which had popular support and, and there was a big campaign that they were up against to overturn it and have another referendum so that bound people together in a way it might not have mm. now and I think it's the reason there is such division is the person who lost the leadership contest as being proved right at every corner and in the situation where you have the polls and the way that they are showing such huge support for your opponent's labour I think that kind of can make people panic and lash out in all directions. And I think the government number 10 just seems to have gone into this sort of bunker mentality where they perhaps think, we're just going to push this through, then we've got until the next election. Mm. So we're going to get through our agenda. I suspect that is where they are at the moment in this bunker mentality. Just on the experts point, I don't think people are criticising the government because they're referencing the IMF and going, the experts have said this isn't going to work. It's because they can already feel the impact at <laughs> yeah. the, the end of the month. They can see it in their mortgage payments. People still don't really care about the IMF and I'm actually going to come out in favour of Jacob Rees-Mogg here, but he made a good point about the IMF saying with the energy price guarantee, you've got rid of uh, the price mechanism, which would reduce people's demand for energy. But he made the point to say that it's already so high, people are already reducing yeah, uh, the amount of energy, which is true. And yeah. Labour have made that point as well. So, yeah, and it's not as if these experts are omniscient about economics, greater than everyone else. I think that's absolutely right. The abstract warnings of, oh, this organisation that most people don't even know what the acronym stands for says that this is really bad for growth. That doesn't really factor into people's decisions. Whereas my mortgage bill is going to be £500 a month more than I thought it was going to be. That is is really stark. And I think in terms of Brexit as a kind of why didn't the experts matter then? We've talked before on the podcast about how the Brexit campaign was able to sell a vision without any specifics that sounded quite appealing depending on who you were talking to. We could have less immigration, homegrown British jobs, but we could also be free and dynamic. And we've talked about how those are two very different economic strategies and maybe you could do one or the other, but you certainly can't do both. The situation that we're in now is that the vision that Liz Truss is trying to sell, which is there'll be no regulation and we can just unleash businesses and people are going, wait, so that means that everything for me gets more expensive while bankers in the city get many millions more. And hang on, you're also talking about 
cutting things like working time directives and the fact that employers have to offer a certain amount of paid holiday. Hang on, I, I don't care about this growth thing. I don't think that what you are suggesting is making my life any materially better. Oh, and also the experts all think it's bad. So I think it's that the measures are unpopular and therefore the expert voices saying this is a bad idea have more resonance than if you can sell a really popular vision and then go, don't listen to the experts. They don't know what they're talking about. It's Mm. all going to be great. Basically, I don't think the majority of people in this country have much faith that Liz Truss can make Britain great again. Yes, and whatever they hear from the experts will verify something that they're already suspecting. And I think you you hit the nail on the head when you said this growth thing, because I've been speaking to Brits on low incomes and part-time workers, single parents and things. And they've been saying that the word growth doesn't mean very much to them. And actually, people who are running focus groups at the moment are also picking this up. The the word growth is not very meaningful and the concept of it doesn't relate. It's too macro. It doesn't relate to your own personal circumstances. And you've all talked about people being worried about their mortgages going up, their rent going up, their benefits not stretching as far as they should. And the language of growth and Labour does it too, is not particularly, it doesn't really resonate with people on a sort of individual basis. And I think that also ties back into the question that we've been asked about the term supply side reform as well. All of these terms aren't necessarily something that are motivating people day to day. I think that's absolutely right. It's like the the language of theory. It doesn't talk about how much is the price of bread, how much is your milk, what does your mortgage cost, what does your high street look like? All things that Boris Johnson was very good at just switching between and finding language that related to people's lives. And I think the way the government is presenting its economic package is symptomatic of some of the problems with trust that she can be, she can come across as quite a cold politician. She could come across as quite removed and just even the language in PMQs this week was quite technical. And it's just such a gear change from this big personality that you think that they will have to find better language to describe what they're trying to do because they're, they're banking everything on growth. And given the billions of billions they're putting into the economy, they might have some level of growth before the next election. But if people don't understand what that might mean for them, then it's difficult for them to win any support with it. Yeah, the narrative and the framing of it's vital. And I think it can be done. You've got to remember back in the coalition years when Osborne and Cameron were talking about a strong economy means more money for the public services. A very simple phrase that they they kept repeating. And I think that resonated with lots of people. Thank you very much, everyone. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues, Freddie Hayward, Rachel Cunliffe and Rachel Wearmouth. We're produced by May Robson and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and don't forget to leave us a nice review and subscribe and you can submit a question for You Ask Us online. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.